I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already this morning, to Matthew chapter 22. And really, last Lord's Day, we did not finish the passage that I started to preach on. And we, understandably, I suppose, especially in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we focused on the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. And we focused on that, and, but we really did not finish uh, focusing on our Lord's words in Matthew 22, his question back to the Pharisees. And this passage is, in some ways, the, a pinnacle moment in the Gospel of Matthew. It is a mountain peak. Just these few verses we're going to focus on this morning. Matthew chapter 22, um, beginning in verse 41. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him, the Christ, Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This is the word of our Lord. And we want to ask God in his spirit to come and to help us to understand his word, but even more than that, to bring it home to bear upon our hearts. So let's pause and pray. Our Father, we do so now. We dare not presume that in our natural strength we can understand the implications of your word. So we do ask especially that for that ministry this morning of your spirit. We desperately need to be changed, every one of us, to be more in line with the truth of who your son is. So we ask, dear, gracious, mighty spirit of God, be present this morning and make your word powerful that we may know Jesus. In his name we ask. Amen. Jesus's question to the Pharisees comes after three successive verbal attacks. And they are not just off-the-cuff verbal assaults. They are designed, they were premeditated, they were planned. At the beginning of chapter 22, we learned that the first verbal attack upon Jesus as he's standing in the last week on likely Wednesday in the temple courts there in Jerusalem. The first verbal attack was by a group of disciples of the Pharisees combined with the servants of Herod, of all people, to go and to ask Jesus a 
a trick question about whether or not you should pay taxes to Caesar. And of course, Jesus asked for a coin and held it up and said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. It's, it's a memorable line and so instructive for us and a reminder that none of us can catch Jesus or God in his words. His word is clear, his word is true, and for us to obey. But they wanted to trip Jesus up. They, they wanted to catch him and, and show him to be a, either a traitor to Rome or a betrayer of his people. And Jesus evaded their attack. He successfully withstood it. The second one came from the Sadducees. The Sadducees, we know from Josephus, who was a Jew, Jewish historian who lived uh, around the same time of, as Christ and his apostles, who wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and we have his writings, and we know from him, outside of the Bible, who the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at that time. And the Sadducees were the religious elite. They were the, the ones who were uh, perhaps most wealthy, most uh, vested with authority. They were uh, in the positions of, of power. They were often the ones from whom the priests were chosen uh, they were the ones who largely controlled the temple precincts, the, the business there. They were the power brokers, religiously speaking. Um, they were like the establishment. And they came with their own attack. They did not believe in the resurrection. They really emphasized the first five books of the Bible, in, in which they thought didn't really teach the resurrection. And they brought to Jesus, again, a, a trick question. And Jesus answers it, of course, and states that God had shared in the scriptures that he was declared, rather, that he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, verse 32. And obviously, then, he is the God of not only the living, but if he had made a covenant, an irrevocable covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about their future, obviously, there was a resurrection, So he silences the Sadducees. And thirdly, then, the attack comes from the Pharisees themselves. In the first attack, they had maybe thought it beneath them. They had sent some disciples of theirs. But now, they who are considered among the people to be the experts, they come. The Pharisees were held by the general population to be the most authentic religious leaders. Of course, Jesus rails against them for their hypocrisy. But the Pharisees were the ones who were held largely in esteem by the people. They were thought of as their pastors, if you will. They were their leaders. They were the ones who were zealous. And they not only came to Jesus, but they sent the best of the best. They sent a man who was a scribe, a lawyer, whose life had been devoted. You might think of him as a man with a PhD in biblical exegesis and studies, and he's an expert. He is their top guy. He goes to Jesus and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Of course, Jesus answers perfectly, without flinching, that the greatest commandment is, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he goes on as the king and the giver of the law to say, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Not only in Jesus' answer did he evade the trick question, but with his, he not only did he answer correctly, but think about it. In his answer, he exposed the lovelessness of the Pharisees. He exposed that this was not about their love for God. They loved their position. They loved their title. And not only did they not love God, as was evident in the crafty way they were going about attacking Jesus, they certainly did not love their neighbor. So Jesus not only withstands these attacks, he not only, he not only uh, stares them down, but in each case he has, as you were, a counterattack. But that comes to a culmination in verse 41. The, the Pharisees were stymied by his answer. They were gathered together. They're huddled there in, in the courts of the temple. There's a large crowd, crowd around Jesus. And Jesus with all authority as the king, and as if he owns the place, because he does, he says, all right, now you've asked me three questions, I have one for you. And he says to them, what do you think, verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? And remember the scene, this is a, a group of Pharisees. You, you would know who they were. They were identifiable by their religious garb and by these, these phylacteries, these, these, these leather pouches. They would have little copies of the word of God around their, their sleeve, around their forehead. They, you knew a Pharisee from half a mile away. Uh, it's somewhat like all the pomp and circumstance of the priests and, and the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church or your Church of England uh, very interested to let everybody know that you're religious by your, by your garb. And so you, there they are in the temple huddled together, but there's also a large crowd. This is all happening publicly. The, the environment is electrified. It is, it is, this has been serious. Are the, are the leaders going to be able to take down this country boy, this Jesus from Nazareth? Or is he, in fact, who he claims to be, the Messiah? So he asked them a question, and the question is very fair. Unlike their questions, which were crafty, which were, which were meant to be devious, he asks them a straightforward question. He hands them, uh, basically, rather lobs to them a, a softball pitch, you know, underhand. Uh, I shouldn't say that's easy because I probably couldn't hit a softball to save my life at this point. But, but, but the idea is, you know, they're, they're throwing him all kinds of curveballs, change-ups. He, like, he gives them like an underhand lob right? It's, it's, a, it's like a melon coming at them. He asked them a question about Psalm 110. And it should be easy because Psalm 110 is a beloved messianic psalm. It is, it is one of the most cherished psalms that speaks of the great Messiah, the great Christ, the King who will come. Psalm 110, which is quoted by Jesus, interestingly, is the most referenced passage from the Old Testament in the New. The New Testament quotes or references, quotes from or references Psalm 110 more than any other passage in the entirety of the Old Testament. So Psalm 110 should be easy. These are the religious leaders. They're they're paid to study the Bible, if you will. This is their job. They should know this. And They are looking for the promised Messiah, presumably. They're looking for the king. So Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
They say to him, the son of David. He says to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until my enemies, I put your enemies beneath your feet. His reference to Psalm 110 is is plain, but it is also very pointed. It's a magnificent psalm. And for our purposes this morning, I would actually like to go back and read the entirety of the psalm. It's not very long, but would you keep your finger or your place mark if you have a Bible in Matthew 22 and turn with me for a moment to Psalm 110? Because often in the New Testament, and same is true of our Lord, when either our Lord or one of the apostles is quoting from the Old Testament, they are often not only referencing the specific phrase or sentence from, say, a psalm. But when they make that allusion, they're making the allusion to people who have heard this psalm their whole life. And, and so with that one line, there's, there's also a reference and allusion to the, the entirety of the psalm, the, the context of the psalm, the tenor of the psalm or the passage. So let me read Psalm 110. Notice it is a psalm of David. More about that in a moment. David wrote, the Lord says to my Lord. Now let me just pause there in the Hebrew. David says Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name that God, the name that God revealed to the Israelites. They didn't come up with that name for God. God revealed it to Moses. I am. Yahweh means I am or I will be who I will be. Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God, said to my Lord. So David is saying, David the king, Israel's greatest king, is saying, the God of Israel, the one true living God, said something to David's Lord. What did he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord or Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. So Jesus is referencing this psalm. He's referencing the first verse, the Lord says to my Lord. But the whole psalm is a regal psalm. It is striking in its grandeur, in its lofty, high, poetic language. Other psalms, David is very personal in in speaking of just his daily life, if you will, of living with the sorrows and the brokenness and the pain of this world. But here, David is acting as not only a king, but a prophet. God has revealed something to him, and he is relaying that to us. And 
God is saying to this Lord, whoever he is, that, that he is going to be exalted to God's very right hand until God Almighty makes this, this Messiah's enemies like a footstool under him. It speaks of his scepter and, and his throne being in Zion, in Jerusalem, in the, in the midst of his enemies. It's not going to be an easy thing. It's going to be a display of power. It's, it's a glorious passage, a promise that one day the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's people will love him, will volunteer freely to serve him with all their hearts. And then strikingly in verse 4, this, this king that is to come, this Messiah, is not only a king, but he's a priest. And that is unique. The offices of king and priest were very distinct in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. But in this one, this Lord, who is David's Lord, he is both king and he is priest. And he's a warrior king. He's going to shatter kings in the day of his wrath. This is, this is amazing. The, the images of this priest king, this priest warrior, one day coming... And entering into the fray, into the battle against his enemies and gods. And being in the conflict and so engaged that at one point he stoops down in his thirst and drinks from the water. But it's no indication of his weariness, but rather of his resolve. This warrior king is not going to stop until the enemies of God and God's people are utterly shattered. I mean, it ought to wake us up. And as an aside, does this fit at all with your picture of Jesus? This isn't the only passage. Isaiah 61, or is it 63, in which there's this one who's dressed in robes of crimson. And he is a warrior. And he's the Messiah. So it's a striking psalm that Jesus alludes to. And it is clearly messianic. It speaks of the Christ, the promised descendant of David, who God promised would reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem over his people. So this is the psalm that Jesus references. The Pharisees know it, and they know it well. The people know it, and they know it well. It probably was a favorite psalm, particularly in a time when they were under the foot of Rome and resented it. They paid the taxes to Caesar and to his thugs like Herod and took home very little pay after their wages. They hated Rome. They hated, they thought of Rome as foreign occupiers. And so this psalm likely was beloved because it spoke of a Messiah who was going to come and remove the enemies of God's people. So it's known, the Pharisees know this psalm. They should know it well. They've heard it since they were boys. They've probably preached stirring sermons on it. And so Jesus asks a very simple question. And in the way that Jesus asks the question, we learn something very important this morning about the origin and the nature of Scripture. And this is my first point. It's not a very good point. Not very stirring, but I don't know how else to put it. The origin and nature of Scripture. In other words, where does Scripture come from? And what's its nature? What's, its, what's it like? And I want us to take just a moment 
to learn from Jesus his view of the Bible. It's very instructive. First of all, I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus in verse 43 quotes, after quoting the, the line, rather after asking the question, whose son is he? In verse 43, Jesus says that David wrote in the spirit. We just maybe just read over that quickly. But there's all kinds of debates, there has been over the past 150 years especially, about the nature of the Bible. And the most common view in our day in universities, even, of course, liberal seminaries and and colleges and universities, but increasingly on the fringes of evangelicalism as well, that the Bible, in part, is merely the words of men. And so you have people saying things like, well, I know Paul wrote that, but Jesus said. And if anybody ever says that to you, they just reveal to you their view of Scripture. They actually don't believe it's inspired. They actually don't believe it's the Word of God. Jesus affirms that David wrote the psalm. And Psalm 110, in the beginning, it says a psalm of David. Now, it's hard in our English Bibles to know sometimes when something is original and when something's not. Some of our modern printers haven't helped us in that way. I I personally, like my Bible I have in front of me here, the New American Standard, has these titles over the different sections like tribute to Caesar or Jesus answers the Sadducees. I know they're trying to help. I really wish they would just leave it out because the average person might not know what's being added and what's original. So, but that title, I say all that to say that little inscription at the beginning of Psalm 110, a Psalm of David is original. It's part of the text. It's, it's part of the scriptures. That psalm is a psalm of David. That's not mythical. That's not, that's not a guess. It's a declaration. So Jesus affirms human authorship. Jesus affirms that David was the author, but Jesus says, verse 43, in the spirit. In other words, Jesus is making the Pharisees face the fact that the ultimate author of Psalm 110 is the very Spirit of God. It is not only a man's word, but it is the Word of God. It is breathed out by God. Jesus teaches and believes and insists upon the full, plenary, full inspiration of the Word of God. David in the Spirit. Human author, divine author, it is God's word. It is inspired. So its origin, it's from God, ultimately. We need to remember this. The Bible's origin, ultimately, is not from a man. It is ultimately from God. Secondly, under this first point, I want you to note that Jesus insists that this word is plain. What I mean by that, it's clear. The, 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 the big theological word is perspicuous the perspicuity of scripture which if you haven't heard that word it's probably 
means the exact opposite to you of what it actually means. <laughs> it means clear. It means plain. It means understandable. But the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, Jesus in all of his quotations, this past week I spent a little time just going through Matthew, just looking at every instance where Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. And in every single case, he never adds to the meaning of it. He never pulls out some, some really uh, um, ethereal, esoteric uh, minuscule detail that no one could have ever seen. He, he basically does what he says to the, to the people. Have you not read? I mean, there it is. It's on the surface. It's kind of like when we lose something. How many of us do this? I do this all the time. You know, where are my glasses? Can't find my glasses. <laughs> and uh, some of you don't. Can you see them? They're on my head, right? And, and they're just like right there. It's not very far away. And I'm just so distracted, maybe, that I've lost track of them. The Bible is not disheveled like some of our rooms or some of our garages. <laughs> it's not piled up. It's, it's clear. And Jesus insists in the understandability of Scripture. He does not hold to the idea that only an elite group of people can understand it, but rather he just points to the plain meaning. And I especially want you to notice that Jesus in verse 43, pays attention to the grammar. I've mentioned references before. And the kids, you're starting school. And how many of you love grammar? I mean, you get up in the morning, you're like, I hope we study grammar today. Not, not too many takers. Not too many. Um, you know, especially in elementary school, nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, all that. We think, oh, boy, can we please go to recess or or something, whatever recess may be for you. But grammar matters, and words matter. And notice that Jesus asked them about a word, a noun. He's asking in the grammar, if David is the one writing, David says, verse 44, the Lord, God, Yahweh, said to my Lord. So, this is a third person here, and obviously in Psalm 110, he is a messianic figure, no denying that. But Jesus asks, well then, if he's David's Lord, how can he be David's son? Jesus is not denying that the Christ would be a descendant of David, but he's pointing to the plain grammar and, and wording of the verse and, and this idea today is, is looked upon as though Jesus is being proud. If any other Bible interpreter insists on that kind of detail today, they're said, well, you're being really particular about that detail. You know, we can't really be sure about David was saying. And notice, I want you to note this. Jesus insists on the inspiration and the clarity of Scripture down to one word. Not general phrase. He insists, haven't you paid attention to just this one little phrase? And if David is talking about God, then who is this Lord? Words matter to Jesus, especially his word. And I want you to notice that Jesus' view of Scripture, we're looking at the origin of Scripture. It's from God. It's nature. It's clear. It's plain. It's understandable. 
and, and it's, thirdly, I want you to notice it's binding. It's authoritative, if you will. Jesus insists that this word written by David under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written hundreds of years earlier, is nonetheless binding on his present day. It's alive. It's living. So Jesus insists that when David wrote, God wrote. And he's asking the Pharisees publicly in this setting as supposed teachers of Israel, then you've paid attention to Psalm 110, right? How about just the first verse? What does David, if, if the Messiah is the son of David, Jesus is not denying that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David, uh, irrevocable um, covenant that was not dependent upon David's obedience. It was a unconditional covenant that God said, David, I am going to bless your house and one day one of your seed, your descendant, will reign on your throne forever without end. So the Messiah would be a son of David. Turn back, if you will, to the beginning of Matthew. Keep your finger in chapter 22. But look with me at the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. There we learn in the Gospel of Matthew in the beginning that this Gospel, this written by Matthew under the inspiration of the Spirit, is the record, at the beginning anyways, here in chapter 1, it is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there's great concern in this gospel, which is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of the promised king. There's great concern at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew to show down to the lineage that Jesus is descended from David. But Jesus's point back to chapter 22 is that way back in Psalm 110, God had revealed that David's descendant would be more than a mere man. That's the point. David is the greatest king of Israel. He is, he is the king. He is the great figure in Israel's history. And even the Messiah one day will sit on the throne of David. It'll be an eternal memorial to God using this, this mere man. It's a glory, glory not to David, it's a glory to God that he took this shepherd boy from the field and made him of all people to be king over his people. But the Messiah in Psalm 110 clearly must be more than a mere man. Because if you think of Psalm 110, you can reference there if you want. But this this figure, this, when David says, the Lord God spoke to my Lord, first of all, this Messiah, this Christ, and Christ means Messiah, so when Jesus says, who is the Christ, the question is, who is the Christ? And the Pharisees say, the son of David. But Jesus basically says to them, why then does David call him Lord? How can this descendant of David be greater than David? And Psalm 110 is, is, clear. This 
Christ figure, God says, come and sit at my right hand. Now, that is, that is amazing. And the Pharisees haven't paid attention. To be at God's right hand is to be enthroned with the Lord God, who is adamant that he alone is God, that there is no other like him, no other beside him. So how is it that a mere man is exalted to the place to being at the right hand of God? David was never enthroned to the right hand of God, even the greatest king of Israel. God doesn't share his glory. How can this be? And more than that, not only is he thrown and thrown with Yahweh, signifying equality with God, authority on par with God, glory on par with God's glory, but not only is he enthroned and equal to God, but he is an eternal figure. In Psalm 110, verse 3, it it speaks of his eternality, of the fact that that he is, you know, there's allusions to his, his never growing old. His being there at the womb of the dawn. I'm turning there. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. This, this figure, this mysterious figure is... Is not like David. He doesn't have a a, a mere lifespan of a, of a man's life. He, he is this eternal-like figure. So he's enthroned with the Lord. He's eternal. Which the teaching of Psalm 110, as pointed out by Jesus, means, and here's the point, that the Christ is not only the son of David, he is also the son of God. Son of David, son of God. He is the Son of God, one with the Father, which Jesus has taught and claimed and displayed by his miracles. But the Pharisees, and by and large, the people don't want to acknowledge. Jesus points to the plain meaning of Scripture. He is the prophesied priest-king Think about it. He is the prophesied priest king standing in the temple in the week when there will be the Passover lamb sacrifice and feast. He's in the temple courts. He's in the temple precincts, sings a crowd around him, and without any qualification, blushing or blinking, he is claiming on the basis of Psalm 110 to be the Christ. He is claiming to be God's son. The scriptures are clear. His authority and his power and his holiness are clear, undeniable. His interpretation of scripture is undeniably accurate. And that is why after he asks them the question, there is silence. Silence. Because they don't want a king. Not really. They don't want that kind of king. 
And they don't really want a priest to lead them in worship. They've got their own priests. They don't want him. Because if he is who he claims to be, the son of David, the son of God, the great Messiah and priest, he threatens to expose their sin. He threatens to disrupt their lives. He threatens to remove their sense of self-sufficiency and reveal their worship as nothing more than mere lip service. Which is why, by and large, most people don't want him today. And I don't mean just out there in the world. We know that. For them, Christ is nothing more than useful for a swear. I'm talking about the church, the professing church. We're okay with Jesus. We're okay with Christ. Not this one. Not, not the one of Psalm 110. Because he's not like us. He's glorious beyond what we could imagine. He has an absolute authority. He's not our therapist. He's not our counselor. Nothing wrong with counselor. But he comes to us as he is, our Lord and King, to command us how we ought to think, how we ought to live, what we ought to do. And that threatens to expose our sin. That threatens to disrupt our lives, our routine. You know those, well, everybody does. Everybody knows. Everybody except Jesus. <laughs> Jesus never comes to anybody and says, oh, yeah, I heard that. Everybody thinks that way. Everybody, You're right. We should go along with that. He removes our sense of self-sufficiency, doesn't he? He exposes our utter need for God. And if this is the Christ, this Psalm 110 character enthroned with the Father in glory and power and majesty, and if he is a priest meant to lead his people in the worship of the Father in the presence of a myriad of angels and the redeemed people, then what kind of condemnation would that put upon so much of our worship in this day and age in which we are concerned about how long is the service going to be? When can I get this over with? How will this fit into my week? And we've all been there. It's easy to beat up on the Pharisees. It's so easy. 
I mean, they are the perennial punching bag. I mean, what evangelical today doesn't know the Pharisees are bad? Those legalists of old, they're really bad characters. But we fail to see how we have more in common with them than not. For the question of the text and the declaration of the text this morning, the declaration is, this is your king and your God. And the question is, will we acknowledge that? Will we acknowledge him for who he is, not who we would want him or make him to be? Will we receive Christ? Yes, as unbelievers or those who are separated from God, we must receive Christ as our Savior. We must be forgiven of our sins, but I'm asking this of everyone here this morning. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Will we receive Christ afresh as he is, who he is, as declared in the scriptures, not in the conglomeration of various ideas of men with man-made, man-centered concerns? This is the Christ. What Maybe it'll help us just in closing and pastoral application. What should have happened What ought to have happened in that moment in which the Pharisees were exposed and obviously guilty in front of everyone because of their their misreading of Scripture or their not wanting to see in Scripture what was plainly there, as, as the population that was there to presumably worship God was exposed, that they didn't really love God with all their heart, soul, mind, that there wasn't really much intent for that, actually. That it really was about kind of keeping up appearances. It was just part of the routine of life. And this is just who we are. We're just Jews and we worship God and this is the temple. What should have happened? There should have been silence first, but there should have been a dropping to the knees perhaps. Maybe. Maybe there would have been some weeping and some mourning. As there was a realization we're hypocrites. We have not loved God. We don't want God's Christ. The Pharisees should have torn their clothes, their robes in realization and mourning. We are guilty of keeping from the people the very word of God. We are guilty of pushing to them a Christ that they want. The hero that will come in and defeat the Romans but not do much else. And how is that different today in the evangelical church? As a Christ is pushed that the people want but it's not the Christ of the Bible. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ones who's worthy of our majesty, the one that I get up to go and to worship with all my heart and my soul and strength, the one who's worth getting a little bit uncomfortable for to serve. I mean, it's really not that uncomfortable. But who has the right to examine my life and to tell me this is, this is how you should live, this is what you should do. It's plain, it's in Scripture. It's not, un- it's not impossible to please him. He's told us what's pleasing to him. But we want a Jesus that we can just slap as a sticker on our lives with some kind of comfort that we're at least going to escape hell and somehow end up up in heaven. While in reality, we can be just consumed and concerned with what everyone else is consumed and concerned with. Brothers and sisters, this cannot be, may it not be, 
This should have been a moment of revival. It should have been a moment of contrition, a moment of, of mourning over sin, but then a receiving, a moment of joy, a moment of realizing God has given this one, this Jesus, who has come in humility to us, who's not come in fire and judgment, but who's come to save us from our sins, to love him, to adore him, to embrace him, to like the, the Christmas hymn, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. Jesus ought to be received into our hearts, into our homes, and in the church, in the fullness of who he is, son of David and son of God, priest and king. And this can be. It was according to the plan of God and the mystery of God that upon his first coming that Israel would reject her king. By and large, there were a few that embraced him, the apostles among them, but they really were a very small band. By and large, when the promised son of David, Messiah, came, Israel, on large scale, rejected her Christ, her king, her Messiah, And that was under the plan of God because by Israel's rejection now, the good news about the kingdom and the good news about a savior has gone out to all the world. And here we are this morning as mostly Gentiles. It's it's tragic, chapter 22. The silence is a tragic silence. It's a silence of being overwhelmed by Jesus. But note it, it's it's a shameful, culpable silence. They don't want Christ. They don't want this Messiah but they rejected him, we don't have to. That's not the plan of God that the church rejects her Christ. It's not. Christ is building his church. He's reaching men and women. You're here this morning. You're here in Chichester. You're hearing the word of God. You're hearing about Jesus as he is from the Bible. God's given him for you. Yes, he wants you to repent and he wants me to repent. But do you understand he's given you your king, your Messiah, the one who will lead you in worship of God and who will bring you into his presence blameless and with great joy to be in the company of angels without number, to be resurrected, to be glorified, to be sanctified, to be fit to be a king and queen reigning with Christ in the future. This is the declaration of God. This is who Christ is. Will we receive him and worship him? I say we do. I, I, if we're voting, all in favor? Okay, I'm just wondering. <laughs> right? We can by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we must examine ourselves. And the part of our hearts that doesn't want Jesus, the part of our hearts that's like the Pharisees or the, the crowd there and wants Jesus only so far, we go to war with ourselves, and we... In the grace of God, by the power of his spirit, we rebuke our carnal self. Rebuke ourselves. And we essentially say to ourselves, never mind anybody else, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, not how we would want him to be. May it be so. Let's pray. And so, God, we, your, your word is plain, it is clear. It's our ways that are convoluted and cloudy. 
Bring the light of your word and dispel the confusion and darkness, we pray. All grant to us a silence of reverence, but after the silence, may there be a joy of praise, an acclamation of Christ as our King and our God, that in this generation that so belittles Jesus, so remakes him in our little image, that you would blow through all of those false Christs and set down in the midst of us your glorious Son. And though we will be rebuked and though we will be humbled, we know that when we are humbled that you will raise us in joy unfathomable. What a wonder that Christ can be our Lord, our head, our Father, our brother, as it were, our lead worshiper, our priest who himself bore the penalty for our sins and that we can be his people and his representatives. What a glory it is. So renew our love for Jesus today, we pray for his sake. Amen.